Zechariah chapter 13. The first verse says simply, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The New Testament teaches us that the nation of Israel rejected the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. You can read for yourself in John chapter 1 verse 11 concerning Jesus. He came unto his own, and it's referring there to the nation of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But the promise is, to as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe or keep on believing in his name. The problem with the Jews was that they refused to believe that Christ was their Messiah. That's still a problem to this day. They did not believe that he was that great prophet promised to them in the Old Testament scriptures. And far from accepting him, they refused him, and it culminated in them crucifying the Lord of glory. Now, since that time, the nation of Israel as a people, as a nation, have been largely cast off by God. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not Jews here and there who still get converted. They do. Because Paul said in Romans 11 that even at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So there are people, Jews and Gentiles, both who are being converted in our day. But largely, as a nation, the Jews have been cast off by God. Israel is a nation under a spiritual blindness, and it's a double blindness. There's a natural blindness that they have toward the things of God, but there is also what we might call a judicial blindness, a blindness that has been inflicted upon them by God. And again, we can read of this in the epistle to the Romans. And so, as a nation, they still reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But I believe, and I trust that you also believe, that a great day is coming when the Jewish people will receive and embrace the Christ that they so long rejected. The Word of God puts it like this, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now there's some difference of opinion as to what that actual statement means. Uh, some people believe it's referring to the whole nation of Israel. Some people believe it's referring to the nation of Israel and the Gentile elect ones. And so all of them Gentiles and Jews will be saved, and so all Israel, including the spiritual Israel, the church, will be saved. But this is something that will happen at the second coming of Christ. There's going to be a great turning to the Lord among the Jewish people. Now, that's prophesied here by Zechariah. If you go to chapter 12, verse 10, it's brought forth very clearly. The Lord says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And by any stretch of the imagination, when you talk about the English language, this is referring to the Jews. What will he pour upon them? The spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me 
whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There is another scripture which says that a a nation shall be born in a day. What a thrilling time that will be. And that great day is further spoken of in chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, and that's a repeated phrase that comes from chapter 12, because you'll see that there's the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, chapter 12, verse 1. And he talks about, in verse 3, in that day. Verse 4, in that day. Verse 6, in that day. Continuing all the way down chapter 12, verse 8, in that day. Verse 9, it'll come to pass, in that day. Verse 11, in that day. And this is culminating in the words of chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, the same day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now let me say that while this verse definitely has application to Israel, it has a wider and more general application to sinners. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. And there are, in fact, three, at least, great gospel truths that we can draw forth from these words. And I want to, tonight, bring those truths before you. First of all, the text refers to a great opening. There's a great opening mentioned here. There shall be a fountain opened to the house of David, etc. God promises here that he's going to open up a fountain for the cleansing away of sin and uncleanness from the house of David. Now, what is this fountain? And how is this fountain opened up? Well, clearly, it is Christ. It's the Lord Jesus that's referred to here and his work of atonement. At Calvary, the fountain of his precious blood began to flow for sinners. God opened there at Calvary a fountain, a sin-cleansing tide. And we sang about it in our hymns tonight. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Blessed be the fountain of blood, to a world of sinners revealed. God has opened a fountain, a sin-cleansing fountain at the cross, and it is a fountain of blood. The blood of Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of the Bible is a gospel of blood. And you know that gospel is in the Old Testament as well as the New The Old Testament is filled with sacrifice. Right from that first sacrifice that's mentioned when Abel brought the firstling of his flock as an offering to God, and continuing on through to people like Noah 
who offered upon the altar sacrifices of blood. Abraham did the same thing. Isaac, Jacob did the same thing. The whole Levitical system was a system of bloodletting. All the way through, you see that almost all things were by the law purged with blood. One old apostate from my country once referred to the gospel that we preach. He said it disparagingly. It was a gospel of gore. Well, he said it in a pejorative way, but it actually is true. The gospel is a gospel of gore. It's a gospel of blood. The shedding of blood is something without which there is no remission of sin. There is a great red, a great scarlet line that runs all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it is the fountain of blood. Many will ridicule the blood theology, but that is the true theology of the Scripture. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, that if any man preach any other gospel than that which he had preached, let him be accursed. The word accursed is the Greek word anathema. It means literally, let him be damned in the lowest caverns of hell. That's how Paul felt about the gospel that he preached. What was the gospel that he preached? Well, you can look at it for yourself. And you'll see in Paul's writings, constant reference to the shedding of blood. He talks about, for example, in that great passage in Romans 3, in dealing with the doctrine of sin, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. The thought is a mercy seat or a place for the turning away of wrath by sacrifice. But notice what it says, to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. And it is Paul, in writing to the Hebrews, who says that almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. That animal from Abel's flock that was offered to God had its blood shed. It wasn't strangled. It wasn't poisoned. It had its blood shed. And this was a pointer to Calvary where a fountain of sin-cleansing blood would be opened and would flow for sinners. Think of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. The Passover lamb, which is always referred to in the singular, as I have often pointed out, even though there were thousands of lambs killed that night. Thousands of them. Because there was a lamb for each house. It always is in the singular. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb. That Passover lamb had its blood shed. It wasn't poisoned. It wasn't strangled. It wasn't put to death by some other means. Its blood was shed, and the blood was taken with a plant called hyssop and painted on the houses of the Israelites, on the lintel, and on the doorposts of each house. And that was a typical symbol 
of the Lamb of God, whose blood would save many from eternal death. The work of the high priest on the annual day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, when he took the blood of an animal into the holy place in a basin, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat or the propitiatory as an atonement for the people. It was a sign, it was a picture, it was a portrayal of Calvary and the fountain of atoning blood that would be opened there. All the way through with the morning and evening sacrifices and all of those atoning offerings that were made, the Lord is picturing all the way through there his way of salvation. There are some people who teach a false gospel, which is that in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. That they were saved by the animal sacrifices. But that is not true. That that is not true. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. No one was ever saved by the animal sacrifices. And we know that this is true from what the New Testament says in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just go there for a moment. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can, notice this, never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. In other words, those sacrifices could never make one person free from sin. Never could make them perfect. For he goes on, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If they were perfect sacrifices, there would no need to repeat them. Because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Now look at this. For it is not possible. In other words, it's impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So it's clear no one was ever saved by the animal sacrifices. No one. So what was their purpose? Their purpose was to point to one who was to come, who would offer one sacrifice for sins, even the Lord Jesus who sacrificed himself. And this brings you down to verse 11 of Hebrews 10. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, notice it, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus it's talking about, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And this, my friends, is why we reject utterly the Roman Catholic so-called Mass. What is the Mass? It's not communion remembering the death of Christ merely. It's not just a remembrance. By Rome's own insistence, it is a sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice offered regularly for the sins of both the quick and the dead. That's why they have what are called requiem masses. That is for those who have already died. Masses are said for the repose of their souls to get them out of an imaginary place called purgatory so that they can be released to go to heaven. This is Roman Catholic doctrine. The Mass is the central act of worship in Rome. It's even more important than confession. 
It's even more important than the last rites. The Mass is the central plank of Rome's worship. You need the priest in order to be saved. You cannot be saved without the ministry of a priest, because only he, by some magical method, can change a piece of flour and water, a wafer, into the body and blood and sinews and nerves and full deity of Jesus Christ. That's what is claimed. There's a book by a Roman Catholic theologian that teaches clearly that we're part of a consecrated host to fall to the ground of the church, to the floor, and be consumed by a mouse. By their doctrine, God Almighty would dwell in the belly of that mouse. Now, folks, that's blasphemy of the worst order. Do all average Roman Catholics understand that? No, they don't. Many of them don't even know what is claimed by their own system. But if they would study it and read it, they would find that it's true. The doctrine of transubstantiation, it means change of substance, is central to Rome's doctrinal position. Transubstantiation, the change that is wrought on a piece of flour and water, a wafer, by a simple prayer by the priest, who, when he is distributing the mass wafer, has people to kneel in front of him and will place either himself or, by the use of deacons, the wafer on the tongue of the penitent. And he will say, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. breaks my heart to know that there are people who believe that by that means they're eating and drinking eternal life. When my dear wife was in a facility not long before she died, there's a part of that facility where they had services, religious services. And one day I stood in the hallway and there were a lot of people in there And there was a Roman Catholic Mass taking place. It was by a Filipino priest. So many of priests today are from ethnic backgrounds, other countries. In Ireland, they can hardly get an Irish man to be a priest. They're all from other countries. They're from South America, Central America, from Eastern Europe. Almost all of them. The seminaries can't get an Irish priest anymore. They're all from foreign countries. But nevertheless, they all believe the same thing. And I watched with horror and with real sadness as that man went through the whole rigmarole of the Mass and through the use of a young priest who was there with him going around those old folks, offering them the body of Christ. And in witnessing that again, even from afar, I thought, Lord, thank you, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for salvation, full and free, through the one offering of Christ 
for sinners. He doesn't have to be offered time and time and time and time again, because that's what's claimed in the Mass. He's being offered as a sacrifice to God again and again and again. What does Hebrews chapter 10 tell us? For by one offering he hath perfected them that are sanctified. God's way of salvation was and is and always shall be the way of the blood. The blood of Jesus. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And this great opening that's mentioned here was not, you will notice, a fountain of water. Baptism doesn't save you. I don't care whether it's a few drops of water or a lot of water, a tank full or a font full or a few sprinkled drops. Baptism with water does not save you. It is the blood of Jesus alone that saves. 1 John 1 verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. We sing about it all the time, don't we? What can wash away my stain? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only place of cleansing from guilt and sin and its defilement is that fountain that was opened at Calvary. One sacrifice for sins forever. What an insult to the work of Christ to say that you could perpetuate that sacrifice or you could repeat that sacrifice or you could imitate that sacrifice. There is one sacrifice for sin. And here it is, a great opening, a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. But as well as a great opening, there's a gracious offer in our text. Because the fountain is opened to people. The fountain is opened for the benefit of people. Here it is. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The fountain is opened graciously to sinners. And as we come to New Testament truth, we find that it's for Jew and Gentile. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your ethnicity. There's a fountain that's opened to sinners of all hues and all stripes. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. What a word that is. I've often reflected upon the illustration of Richard Baxter of Kidderminster, a great Puritan preacher. He used to wish that the Lord had written John 3.16 like this. For God so loved Richard Baxter 
that if Richard Baxter believeth in him, Richard Baxter would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he reflected on that and he thought, no, that would not be right. That would not be good. Because if I read it like that, it might mean some other Richard Baxter. And I'd be afraid that it wasn't for me. I'd be thinking it was for some other Richard Baxter in some other century or some other part of the world. But he said, it says whosoever. He says, that's even stronger than putting my name in there because that includes all the Richard Baxters who ever did live or ever would live. Whosoever. It means anyone. Anyone. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But brother, what if I'm not one of God's elect? Listen, that's none of your business. Your business is to take the Scripture as it is. Here's the invitation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You come to him, he saves you, and then you know you're one of God's elect. That's how you know you're elect. You don't try to find out if you're chosen of God before you ever come to him. What did Jesus say? John 6, 37. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to me, I will under no circumstances, that's what it means, cast out. What a tremendous word that is. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's a general statement. The cleansing flow is available to sinners everywhere. I'm so glad I can tell any sinner that I meet that God offers to you a remedy for your sin if you will have it. If you will come to Christ, He'll save you. It's an offer that must be taken up. Now, we know what lies behind the taking up of that offer. When people do respond positively to that offer, it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in their hearts. It's because the Holy Spirit has opened their hearts. He has regenerated them. He's given them that willingness to come to Him. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, the Scripture says. But the offer must be taken up. It's a gracious offer. It's a well-meant offer. A lot of people, you know, are aware of the fountain that's been opened. They've heard the gospel, some of them from childhood. They actually believe intellectually that Christ died, that he shed his blood, but yet they're still not saved. Why? Well, they believe in the fountain, but they've never been cleansed in it. They've never been cleansed from sin and uncleanness. Now, why is that? Because it's not enough to know about the fountain opened. You must get under the fountain. One of our hymns says, step out on the promise. Get under the blood. There's an Old Testament story of a man called Naaman. He was a Syrian. He was a very high-ranking officer in his army. 
he had leprosy, which in the Bible is always a type of sin. It's typical of sin. He had this life-threatening disease. And he tried everything to get rid of it. He went to the wrong people to try to help him, and he couldn't get rid of it. And then as a result of one of their forays into Israel, where a little girl was taken captive, that little maid, her name isn't even given in the Bible. We don't even know her name. We'll find out one day when we get to heaven. But she gave him information. And it was, would to God, my master was with the prophet that is in Samaria. He would cleanse him from his leprosy. Talking about Elisha. And so he eventually came into touch with Elisha. And he got the message. Look, if you go down to the river and wash seven times, your skin will be made like a baby's. You'll be healed from your leprosy. And of course, Naaman didn't like that message because the river Jordan was a filthy river. And he said, well, what about Farper and Abana? These are more beautiful rivers. Could I not go and wash in them and be clean? It's just like many people today who think, well, I I would rather go this way or that way to get saved. I would rather do this or do that. And when Naaman was thinking about not going to the River Jordan, he was told by his servant, look, Master, if you'd been told to do something difficult, would you not have done it? When you're being told to do something simple, like just going and washing in in the River Jordan, would you not do it? And so he did. He went down to that filthy old river and he washed himself seven times and his flesh came again like a little child, the Bible says. Wonderful type of salvation. The fountain has been opened, but you have to plunge into it if you're going to be washed from your sins. Naaman is an illustration of that. He knew the way to be clean from his leprosy, but knowing the way did not cleanse him He had to actually accept the offer, obey the order that was given, and wash. That was the word, wash and be clean. That's the gospel. There's a fountain opened. It's a fountain of blood. Wash and be clean. Wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Simple gospel truth. And there are many who only accept and will believe that only the blood of Jesus can take away their sins, but they've never accepted the offer of being washed in the blood. Years ago, there was a prisoner in the United States by the name of George Wilson. He was to be executed, but he was offered a pardon. He could have gotten out of that and been released but he refused the pardon he wouldn't accept it and he went to his death listen the fountain has been opened to you if you'll plunge beneath that fountain and look at this gracious offer look at what God offers to us pardon from all sin and uncleanness Complete cleansing, complete forgiveness from all sin and all guilt. 
You can be a justified person, one whom God views as as if he had never sinned. My father used to love to give his testimony and he always, always used Romans 5 verse 1 as the basis for it. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that every single sin can be washed away and will be washed away if you come to Christ. Back there in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, the scripture records the Lord speaking, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And that great promise is repeated in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isaiah 44 verse 22 says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me for I have redeemed thee. All your sins blotted out, all of them forgiven, all of them washed away in the fountain filled with blood. See, the blood reconciles us to God. It's interesting just to note the marginal rendering of these words. The blood reconciles us to God. There in Isaiah 44, verse 22, the promise is given. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy sins, or thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. But the thought here in Zechariah chapter 13 is separation for uncleanness. See, it says there, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. The marginal rendering is uncleanness, or as it is in the Hebrew, separation for uncleanness. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about the practice under the ceremonial law where there was separation for uncleanness. In other words, you were put away from the camp of Israel because of your uncleanness. You have it here in Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 31. Thus shall you separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, that they die not in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This was a practice of the ceremonial law For various different circumstances, there was separation for uncleanness. People were separated from the camp for that uncleanness. And they're only brought back to the camp on the day of their cleansing. Now, Isaiah 59 verse 2 actually says, But your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. But there's a fountain opened for that separation for uncleanness. The blood of Christ deals with the uncleanness. It cleanses us. It makes us acceptable to God. 
What a wonderful, gracious offer this is. When we studied Colossians, we read in chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated, that means cut off, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's the result of cleansing. If you're not saved, I don't know if anybody's listening to this who's not a believer or will listen to it at a future time, to the recording of it. But if you're not saved, let me ask you, will you accept God's offer of mercy? Will you come and receive and act upon this gracious offer? But as well as a great opening, fountain opened, and a gracious offer opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there's mentioned here a glorious occasion. And what is that glorious occasion? Well, it's in those words, in that day. We've already mentioned the various references to that in chapter 12. What is that great day? It's the great day of Israel's salvation. But the special features of that day that are mentioned in verse 10 are identical to those in every sinner's conversion, in every sinner's salvation. What does it tell us there? Chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So there's something that happens on this glorious occasion. There's mention made of the spirit in that day. You see, the salvation of Israel, just like every other person who is ever saved, it's attributed to the work of the spirit. I will pour upon the house of David the spirit of grace and of supplications. The Holy Ghost is the one who brings sinners to the Lord. And the more I go on in ministry, and I've been in the ministry for many, many years, the more I understand and the more I recognize and accept that salvation is of the Lord. I cannot save anyone. One time, I think it was D.L. Moody, was walking through Chicago and he saw this drunkard laying in the gutter. And the drunkard shouted up and said, Mr. Moody, I said, you saved me. I remember one time you saved me. And Moody said, I must have. I must have, because it was the Lord that saved you. You wouldn't be laying there drunk in the gutter. Salvation is of the Lord. It's the work of the Spirit to convict and to convert. John 16, verse 8 teaches us that. He convinces of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And how does the Spirit do this? He works through the Word of God. He works through the Bible, showing men their need of Christ. Our son-in-law was converted largely as a result of reading his grandmother's Bible. Reading the Word. God uses His Word. 
and brings people to repentance through his word. This is what the Spirit does. The great means that he uses is the word of God. So there's mention made of the Spirit in that day on this glorious occasion. But there's also mention made of the supplication in that day. Note how it says there in verse 10 of chapter 12, I will pour upon the house of David and so on, the spirit of grace and of supplications. Now what does that mean, supplication? It's a reference to prayers. It's a reference to calling upon the Lord. So the occasion of cleansing in that fountain is that day when you call upon his name, when you pray and ask the Lord to save you. Supplications. We're back to Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's so easy for us to complicate the gospel. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. It is simple. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the context there, you will note, it's a call from the heart. It's not just the formulation of words, but it's the call from the heart. That's when you get saved. When you come to the Lord in simple faith and repentance and ask him to take your sins away. When you pray like the publican did, God be merciful to me a sinner. It simply means be propitious toward me a sinner. Look upon me as when thou lookest upon the blood of the sacrifice. On that basis, Lord, save me. Have you prayed that prayer? But as well as the supplication in that day and the spirit in that day, there's also the sorrow in that day. Because notice what it says there. He'll pour out the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. There's Christ on the cross. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The hymn writer put it like this, I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. That's it. When you get a hold of that truth, Jesus died for me. That's how you're saved. Another hymn says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that causes sorrow. They shall mourn for him because they looked upon the one whom they pierced. It was my sins that put him on the tree. It's when you recognize that that you come to Christ and you're saved. And these people of Israel are going to get washed in the fountain opened because they will repent of their sins. Repentance is to leave the sins I loved before and show that I in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Repentance. Change of mind leading to a change of behavior. You must repent of your sins, and you will repent of your sins 
if your sins are truly cleansed away. Let me emphasize, you're not saved because of repentance. You're saved because of Christ, but neither will you be saved without repentance. There is no salvation where there is no repentance. People who tell me, well, I'm saved, but now I'm just going to live the way I always lived. I'm going to behave the way I always behaved. And I see this all the time, and it grieves my heart. People who say they're saved, and they spend their time in bars and clubs, social drinking, listening to rock music, involving themselves in worldly activities all the time, and yet they want to tell you that they're saved, that they're going to heaven. What's the basis for that belief? There's no repentance. There's been no change. They're just like they always were. They're false professors. That's what they are. They're false professors. They've got a name to live, but they're dead. Like it says in the book of Titus, what fearful and sober words are these? Titus chapter 1 verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. There it is, you see. In works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. And they can claim all they want. And they can talk about all the experiences that they had and the prayers that they prayed. But their lives are no different from the day that they made that profession. And therefore, I'm here to tell you, I'm a fruit inspector and I'm not seeing the fruit. And when I don't see the fruit, then I'm not going to believe that there's any root. The Lord Jesus said it. By their fruits you shall know them. That's how you know a true believer. You just look and you see. And what you see is going to tell you something. Is this someone who's really been to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Is this someone who's repented of their sins? Is this someone who has turned from wickedness to live for God? Because if they haven't turned from their sins... That means they haven't really come to Christ. You know, Jesus said, he said it twice in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish perish. Sinners need to repent and believe the gospel. And when they do, that's the occasion of their conversion. When they confess their sins, which literally in the Greek language means to uncover it before God by confession. There it is, Lord. There's my sins. I'm not hiding it, not running away from it. Here are my sins. I'm openly confessing them to thee. See, a man who truly comes to Christ is going to be sorry for his sin. And that's how you know a true believer from a false professor, their attitude to sin. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast, William Cooper said. A person who's truly converted is going to be sorry for his sin 
and he'll never have the same attitude to sin again. And notice I didn't say he'll never sin again. I never said that, because he will. But he'll never have the same attitude to sin again. He'll always be sorry for it. And someone who can sin with impunity without it bothering him is not saved. Period. There has to be repentance. And repentance is true when it comes from the Lord himself. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. And they shall mourn for him. Have you looked by faith to the one whom your sins pierced at Calvary? If you haven't, may this very night be the occasion, that day when you're washed in the fountain filled with blood. In the day in which we live, we need to see reality. There are so many playing church. There are so many pretending to be Christians. There are so many who have fooled others and fooled themselves into thinking that they can live like the devil and still go to heaven. It's not going to happen. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, The Savior comes to men with blessings in both hands. In one hand, there's the blessing of justification. Your sins pardoned and cleansed away and holiness imputed to to you. And in the other hand, there's sanctification. Growth in grace. Going on with God. Leaving your sins. Mourning over your sins. And he said he will not provide one blessing without the other. Christ, who is our justifier, is also our sanctifier. And therein lies the proof of true salvation. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. May the Lord do a gracious work in our day, not just among those of the Jewish ethnicity, but those of every land and every nation. May the Lord bring souls truly to himself.